This week's podcast is brought to you by CBF Peer Learning Groups. Peer Learning Groups encourage ministers to take their well-being seriously. Ongoing learning is crucial to a healthy minister and a healthy ministry. These peer learning groups offer safe spaces for ministers to gather regularly for the purpose of learning while offering support for challenges that arise in ministry. We can help you find or start a peer learning group and offer you resources for your group to succeed. Visit cbf.net backslash plg or email plg at cbf.net for more information. Ministry can often be a lonely and challenging place, so don't do it alone. Join a peer learning group or start one today. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Church Starts Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews of people doing groundbreaking work of partnering together and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from church starters, pastors, and practitioners. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, I want to remind you about General Assembly coming up quickly next month, June 28th through the 30th in Atlanta, Georgia. More specifically, I want to remind our church starters, or those interested in the process of church starting, that we'll be hosting a dinner on Thursday night at 5.30 at Meehan's Public House. If you're interested in joining us for the meal, you can email me at ahale at cbf.net. It is a free meal, so feel free to email me at ahale at cbf.net. I also want to let you know that we are going to be hosting a workshop at 3 p.m. on Thursday of General Assembly. The workshop will feature those being commissioned by CBF this year on Friday night, as well as talk about the growing diversity coming through the Church Start initiative. So that's Thursday at 3 o'clock for the workshop and 5.30 for the dinner. Well, our guest this week is Elizabeth Hagen. She is uh, the executive director of Our Courageous Kids, a foundation dedicated to orphan care education. Uh, she is a Baptist pastor and an advocate. Uh, she's also the author of Birth, Finding Grace Through Infertility. Uh, she's also contributed several other books, including What a Preacher Looks Like. And she will be one of uh, the featured workshop leaders at this summer's General Assembly. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I, I took some time to, to read your book over the last couple of weeks, and this book is absolutely life-giving. This spiritual narrative was challenging, and, and your willingness to be so vulnerable in an inexplicably difficult story, um, it gives readers strength and courage to face similar journeys or, or to be companions um, with those that are facing these difficulties. You've taken a very private struggle for many and given it a strong theological voice. What inspired you to make this shift? Well, I was serving as a pastor of a local Baptist church in Northern Virginia, all during the time in which um, my husband and I were in the, the deepest points of the struggle. And I was pastoring in the sense I was taking care of other people. I was preaching every Sunday having to come up with something to say. And um, when I was, you know, questioning my own faith and my own convictions. And so I, I had to find my own spiritual footing through, through the crisis. And so I, I, I think you see that reflected in a lot of the things that I say in verse is me trying to find God in the midst of a very difficult situation. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, there's been this strange dividing line. I'm sure you face this as a minister, not not necessarily with this particular um, aspect of your journey, but in, in all aspects, it seems like for ministers, 
we have this proverbial private wall where the church really and many times doesn't want to know what's going on with our real life. They do want to poke and prod oftentimes in places they shouldn't. Um, but it seems what you did is you, you took down this proverbial wall and kind of said, this is who I am. Uh, this is, yeah, uh, this yeah. is the chapter of our life. What, I mean, what inspired you to, I would say, crush that proverbial wall to share your story? Well, I, I would say that I, I did not, I never would have imagined I would have done this. It wasn't something I, people that have known me for a very long time, I'm not the most open person. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very private home. There's lots of things that we did not talk about growing up. But one thing that I've realized as this, as I've grown and as this particular journey of infertility affected our family so profoundly is that there is, there's a word that's really a root of it all. And that is shame. And shame grows when people don't talk about things or we label things even unconsciously as, uh, too private or not for public consumption or as if we're the only person who's going through it. And the statistics say that one in eight couples, in this country, um, will experience infertility um, during those childbearing years. And so that's roughly 12% of the country. Um, And even though a couple may feel alone, as we did, um, what I found is that I wasn't alone, that there's lots of other people going through the struggle. But I ended up deciding to write the book because it was really important to me because to help be a resource for other people who have gone through the journey. Because as I was in the place of, of trying to figure out how to navigate all the difficult choices that come with fertility-related issues, all the questions about, do I adopt? Do I give up this dream? How, how do I find my way to be the parent that I feel like God has called me to be? What I discovered is that there were very few resources that I identified with. While there was, you know, there's lots of memoirs these days that are lot more of the honest genre. In terms of the fertility world, I couldn't find anything that I found my own story resonating in. And I had a, a really wise friend who, who sat me down one day and said, well, when are you going to write your story? Mm. And, and so I did. I did. And um, to me, others may disagree with this, but the, the fertility resources out there, there, there are a growing number of, of memoirs on the topic. Um, there are lots of self-help books that uh, couples could pick up to figure out, well, you know, the 101 ways to cure infertility, which I might argue with, but there, there's tons of those. Um, I didn't find a lot of Christian resources. Hmm. Um, the Christian resources I found were uh, often um, of the degree of, well, just pray harder hmm. and you will get what you want. Or find God's will. And, you know, as if just because something's difficult doesn't mean um, that it's not in your plan. Um, People trying to say, well, you know, maybe God doesn't want you to have children. And I knew in my heart that I was meant to be a mother and I was willing to stick through the difficult days of fertility treatments and failed adoptions um, because I knew it's what I was supposed to do. So, uh, yeah, so I created a resource that I was looking for all those years and never found. And uh, of course there were moments, especially as it got closer to the publication date where I was thinking, Oh my goodness, what am I about to do (laughs) in terms of, you know, writing a book about things that it's, you know, on the taboo list of all taboo lists. Um, 
sex, um, talking about the potential of divorce, talking about depression, um, talking about drinking too much sometimes um, because you're so sad. All of those are, are things that I think so many of us experience, but we're just often afraid to admit in public. But if someone didn't start talking about it, um, you know, who will? And I just found myself in a unique position to be able to be that one, hopefully starting some new conversations. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't know how you would label the book, but I would call it a, a beautiful spiritual narrative. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, hmm. it's not a how-to guide. Let me fix it in three steps. You you acutely shared your story uh, filled with grief and faith shifts and new life. And uh, it is so different. Um, and I think because it's so different, people need to know about this book because it certainly uh, is, is different than, than a lot of those resources you were describing. And it, it helps give, um, it helps give a theological language around uh, a very difficult struggle for so many people. And, and you talked about that, 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 you know, the people honestly just don't know, um, you know, because I, I think part of that is the church is so private. Uh, we've lived in this mm, day and age yeah. where we, we ask people how they are on Sunday morning and all of us are guilty of giving that doing great. And we're really not. And, and that part of that is because we're afraid to be vulnerable. I think part of that is we're afraid to actually have people respond with their baggage and their difficulty and the, the difficult chapters they're facing. And we really don't want to be the presence of Christ in that moment. But I, I think it's just a culture. And so you, you've, you've greatly taken down and stripped down that wall and said, here's my story. Let's talk about this. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the most powerful chapters for me was uh, chapter three. Um, and I obviously don't want to give too much away for the book. You need to read the book, buy the book. Um, um, thank but, you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, is the, the, the chapter about this, this trip uh, shift and um, the St. Michael's Covenant. Um, mm, yeah. I, I think, I think, and you could talk about this more, um, for, for husbands or for partners who are uh, on the other side of this, um, it, it helped give um, a practical example of, you know, what true partnership looks like. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this covenant and this, this trip shift? Sure. Well, um, my husband, has, Kevin, has joked um, that he wishes that he would have gotten the sidebar of my book uh, to be able to insert his thoughts about mm-hmm. what was going on in his mind through the whole process. Um, he's not a writer, um, and if I was waiting on him to, to do that, the book never would have gotten done. But it's a really great idea, and maybe someone should do that sometime. But, you know, I think the men in, in the struggle – um, often get left out of the journey. And I've had um, many men come to me when I've done book events in the past couple of months and, and asking for resources or um, wanting to talk to not just me, but my husband, if he's happened to be there about his perspective through it. And one of the things that I've heard over and over again for men is that they're so worried about their wives that they don't then have the time um, to grieve or to show the emotions or to work through the emotions at the level in which they probably need to because it's it's so much harder on a on a woman in the sense that it's her body um, she can't get away from it that's dealing with 
pregnancy loss or um, failed fertility treatments that stay with her almost, you know, on a daily hourly basis, um, that there's that, that, that balance of trying to both be well and both take care of each other can be quite a difficult act. Um, I, if you read birth, you, you see me falling apart at many different stages of our journey of just not being able to cope and still trying to keep it together to be a pastor, which is what I loved and felt very called to be doing. Um, and, and through that, um, this St. Michael's chapter that you mentioned is, it really highlights a time when my husband was really noticing how I was just not well. And he did something which I was a bit annoyed with when it uh, was in the moment. He had called the church council chair and said, you know, I can't tell you a lot of details, but Elizabeth needs a Sunday off, which I was, of course, horrified for because I'm <laughs> a pretty persistent person. And I was, I was like, you can't, I, I don't, this is not a planned vacation, you know. I, I, I'm dedicated to this job. I can't, I can't just be taking a Sunday off. This is ridiculous. But the, the woman who was the chair that year was just so gracious, of course, sure. And um, my husband, along with another friend of ours, um, who was a minister, found a supply preacher in the matter of a couple hours. And then all of a sudden we were on our way um, to a little town called St. Michael's um, in, on the coast of Maryland for the weekend um, to be able to just have some time and space to reconnect. and. That was a real turning point for us in our relationship because what we found, and this is this is not just a case with fertility, but I think it's the case with any sort of grief. If you get so buried down in your own thoughts and mind that there's there's things that you need to share with your partner or people who are close to you in your life, and you just don't don't have the time or space to do that. And for me, what was going through my mind at that time were some big questions like. What if, what if I lose my faith through this journey? Or what if I get to a place where I can't pastor, which means there's no paycheck coming in our home? How will we survive? Or will our marriage survive this? What if we never have children? Will you still love me? Will you still want to be um, with me? I mean, those are big, weighty questions, but really um, important to the foundation of our relationship. And um, we had some time, and I write about how we were able to begin to talk about those things during that trip. And we, um, we left the weekend, um, by making some promises to each other, um, which we jokingly call the St. Michael's covenant. Um, we wrote them on the back of a, um, napkin holder that we had gotten in a restaurant and we, we both had one and, uh, one was in his closet and one was in mine. And we looked at it almost every day. We signed them. Um, and, um, only until the, I think we, we've had them up for years and it only was until we brought our daughter home, um, that has come into our lives in the last, she's 11 months old today, um, that we took those pieces of paper down from our closets and, um, and really blessed that this, the St. Michael's covenant season of our life was, was coming to an end. Well, when the book makes it to the New York Times bestseller list, those those napkin holders, those that'll be, I mean, that napkins are going to be worth a lot of money, so you can put those up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have I have a picture with with my daughter um, holding actually that um, napkin holder, um, and you know, it just seems like the 
average ordinary picture like why are you holding a random piece of crumbled paper but to me that means everything really yeah. so you, you spoke about something there that um i think um, probably you can give a, a lot of voice to for this is um you know that communication was so key to um mm-hmm. to the journey were there other aspects um of the journey that made it um this difficult situation more healthy in your relationship and your partnership and your marriage? Well, one of the, I'll let you in on one of the promises that we made to each other uh, on that napkin holder at St. Michael's was that we would spend time, commit to spend time together um, uh, alone, just the two of us. And we would commit to spend time together apart, um, meaning that we would, give each other the space to connect with friends or family, whoever else we needed to, to find the encouragement for the, for the journey. And so I think for us having that larger community, be a part of our, our lives and have other people that we felt like we could trust to know about what was going on and to show up for us. And I write a lot about that in birth, about the, the new relationships that get born out of the season of the long season. It felt like a grief of, a really significant for me, women that were coming into my life, um, uh, either people that I knew people that I met or reconnecting with, um, people like a teacher of mine in high school that became a very significant, um, mentor for me again. Um, that was really key because they were able to observe things about our relationship or encourage us or help us know how to talk to each other when we faced um, those hard patches that, you know, any marriage goes through, but especially marriages that are dealing with loss, um, especially. Hmm. Well, I think St. Michael's should also give you all some sort of tax benefit because you've certainly brought more attention to that. that, <laughs> that t- I mean, uh, they're known for seafood in that area, but, uh, but now they can be known, you know, as this, this very important site uh, for this book. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's a lovely place. D- just wait for the check in the mail, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. That'd be great. Well, it's been uh, six months since this book hit the online, re- online retailers and, um, and bookshelves. Uh, what kind of response have you had from readers? Are there, are there any particular stories that, that come to mind? Well, I, I've been really grateful for the people that have reached out to me and shared their personal experience of reading the book. I mean, that's the, the best thing that you can do for an author, for any author. That's my um, 10 second commercial, tell them you read the book and tell them what you think, even if you didn't like it <laughs> or had some issue with it, because the worst thing is you publish something and you wonder, is anyone actually reading this or is it just out in the cyber world somewhere? Around space? But, um, I, I think the thing that's fascinated to me, uh, fascinating me the most about this publishing journey of this very personal story is how, um, people have been afraid to talk about it. Um, people I know that have struggled with infertility who were excited about knowing that this book was coming out that I have not, that I hope would be book champions for me that are, that just are not, um, in a position or haven't made the choice to be more public about their own struggles. Um, and so I realized again, that, the topic of infertility or child loss or miscarriages is so mired in shame. um, And I say that it's um, a toxic cocktail of body image issues, sex, 
jealousy, anger, you could keep going on. And so to be the person that has written a book about that topic um, and say to the world here, um, you know, it's funny, people will, um, you know, maybe they're reading it secretly in their closets and not telling anyone, but they're, they're not going to Amazon and saying, you know, I read it or, or whatever. So um, that's been fascinating to me because I'm now at a different place in my journey and I'm of course being very open about it. Um, I was doing a, a church retreat this weekend and I was like, I can't believe the time, the number of times I've used the word infertility in one day and, or, or how many times I've, I've talked about sex at a church in one day. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just, our culture, I think has a lot of movement to make, whereas stories like this one and so many others that need to be told, not just mine, but so many that need to be told, um, have a place, um, of welcome. And so, um, that's, that's what I hope, um, from future authors and moving forward. Well, we can guarantee there's a 45 minute endorsement of this book that people can download on a regular basis. From <laughs> iTunes, so. This is a great place to pause to tell you about one of our sponsors for today, CBF Sabbatical Covenant. Sabbaticals are life-giving gifts to congregations and ministers. Ministers who take sabbaticals are less likely to burn out and leave church or even ministry. Ministers who receive time away find rest and renewal while having the opportunity to explore ministry in ways not usually available to them. If you or your church needs assistance in planning for sabbatical, contact CBF through sabbatical at cbf.net. Well, that might help uh, bridge us to another part of this conversation, which is um, around how church communities can be good companions in a very difficult journey. Um, because as, as you have uh, alluded to, um, people don't know how to talk about this or sometimes they're scared mm-hmm. to talk about it. Um, you know, in our own experience, um, we um, had a miscarriage between um, two of our children, um, our first child and our second child. And um, just very difficult um, part of our journey and uh, people just don't know how to respond. And, mm. uh, you know, when we, uh, when we did conceive and have our second child, uh, we have two little girls, um, former church member of mine came up to me in town and, you know, was doting on my new daughter and then says to me, well, aren't you disappointed? She's not a boy. And they had no idea, mm. but you know, the child we lost was, was a boy. And, and my wife mm. and I have always been uh, the type of people is we don't, we, we want our children to be healthy. We, we don't care if we have a boy or a girl or um, just the opportunity. And, and, and just people don't know what to say sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what is some practical advice <laughs> you can give uh, congregations? Um, you can give ministers because I'm not that ministers know what to say always. What's maybe a list of the worst things you can say to people facing infertility and miscarriages? Oh, there's there's so much I could say. It's hard to know <laughs> where to begin, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of my goals for this book is that it's one of those that would be on every pastor's bookshelf, not a, even if they haven't read it, just so that it's there. Um, in the sense that you know, I would love when people are walking into their pastor's offices and that they see books or they see in their church libraries resources about topics like this, um, so that it 
it, they're there and that, that, that conversation can begin and that people see their ministers as a safe place to have these conversations because it's not something that they're completely uneducated about. Um, like I said, this year statistics alone means that someone in every congregation is going through this right now. Um, and you may not know who they are, but they're there. And so the sensitivity um, is really important. I think I grew, I grew up in the South, um, in Tennessee, in a Baptist context. And uh, I feel like Mother's and Father's Day were almost high holy days, at, um, bigger than Easter in some occasions. And I just, I, I, I I wrote a, a piece that was in Baptist News Global a couple of weeks ago. I think there's so much um, that we could do to be more sensitive to what we do on those those days, um, not only to be mindful of the grief of people who have lost their parents or their parents are no longer with them or have strained relationships with their parents, but just the things that we, we say, um, know that um, somebody's out there in the pews listening and, and taking even an offhanded comment to be theology. Um, because if they, what ministers say, they carry, I, I believe, carry such a high role that maybe um, us as pastors don't understand or don't take into account sometimes. So um, talking about um, things like everything happens for a reason or saying things like God needed an angel or in case of like your story of miscarriage, well, you could try again. I mean, that can be the most insensitive thing to say um, from the pulpit or in a private conversation because it's taking away a person's grief and their loss, and it's it's um, taking away the special value of that experience of life. And and in churches, we may not always agree with one another's choices. There are some people in the Christian community who have very different views on fertility treatments um, than I do or find that they're, there's, that they're somehow wrong. Um, but, you know, um, don't judge another person for their choices. Um, allow God to judge them and um, be a supportive presence of, um, you know, allowing them to make the best decisions for them and their family, knowing that um, when you're unable to conceive naturally or unable to conceive naturally very easily, you face a very difficult road of um, financial burden, of emotional burden, of spiritual burden, uh, of of so many questions that just feel like the great mysteries of life at your doorstep. And and as a church, just to be sensitive to a couple walking through those, those hard days um, by educating yourself, by asking what to do to be helpful, not assuming that you know, um, by being sensitive to those emotionally charged holidays like Mother's and Father's Day, um, by having resources, like I said, in your in your church library, your pastor's bookshelf, um, that show an open-minded approach um, can be quite powerful, I think, for couples. Hmm. Yeah, I would certainly <clears throat> add to that. Does some, and this is pastoral care 101 that, you know, all pastors should, should teach parishioners is just, just be present. Sometimes you don't even need to say a word, <laughs> just yeah. mere presence alone uh, can speak volumes uh, because it's in that, that vacuum of feeling like you have to say something that something is going to come out that is going to be hurtful or theologically stinging. Um, and that's not the intent, but that's how it is. It's certainly received. Um, 
You know, it, I'm a, I've been a huge proponent of wanting to get rid of uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day celebrations and worship. In fact, I do have the backing of Anna Jarvis, who has been credited with the creation of Mother's Day, um, who wanted to abolish it before um, she died um, back in the 40s. Um, mm. But, you know, get, get the church to shift to a liturgical calendar and not so much these uh, Hallmark holidays, because it does open the door for so much hurt and pain. Um, but I think, mm-hmm. I think certainly for ministers who haven't experienced this in their own families, uh, to be mindful of it. And, and just simply maybe even the way you address a prayer on Mother's Day, if your church does celebrate it, to, um, to pray for all sorts of mothers, um, those that are our spiritual mothers uh, and mentors, uh, to, to pray specifically for people facing the difficulty of, of childbearing. Um, just to be more aware, as you said, of, of the hurt that it can be caused by, by focusing in on just a day that's supposed to be a day of celebration, certainly. Right. What are some, as you think about uh, some other best practices you've seen um, some churches put into uh, to place, uh, are there any stories um, that you could share? Well, I, in I, Baptist Life, one really great resource that I want to make people aware of is Project Project Pomegranate. Are you uh, familiar with that? I'm not, but now I need to. Okay. So Project um, Pomegranate, they actually have a book that's a collection of devotions that was published by Smith and Hellway. It's called Through the Darkness Gather Round. Um, And um, it was a ministry that was started out of Watt Street um, Baptist Church in Durham. Um, And they have, I would encourage people to go to their um, website and see some of the resources they have for um, how to model and change um, liturgies or how to be an open-minded congregation when it comes to um, infertility and child loss um, in congregations. Um, I know in their case, um, um, they've organized within that congregation special services that have honored the grief of of couples that have walked through the journey of losing children um, and or being unable to conceive. And so I I think any type of special uh, um, event like that, that, um, that really honors the, the feelings and emotions of, of those couples that makes them feel like their church is a, is a safe place for them to bring how they are really feeling, um, can be quite wonderful. Um, even on a, a larger scale, I, I was, um, I've been a part of, of services. Many churches have this tradition of blue Christmas or um, light in the darkness um, around Advent time. I've also seen churches do that during Lent where they have a special service sometimes on a Sunday night where they um, it's, it's really focused around grief and honoring people who have um, died or honoring lost hopes or dreams or or other estrangements in people's lives. And um, I saw that when I led those as a pastor to be, you know, you're not going to get the, the same number of people you get on a Sunday morning or a big crowd, but the people who come, I mean, it can be one of the most meaningful things for them to have a liturgical service built around grief, um, to be able to, to, to feel safe, to, to really cry in church and, and know that God hears them and that there's people supporting them on their journey. Hmm. Looks like you can find more information at wattstreet.org. Uh, this um, great resource. Um, well, 
we're excited. You're going to be um, with us this summer at General Assembly just a couple of weeks from now in Atlanta. Uh, you'll be leading a workshop on Friday, June the 30th at 1.30 p.m. Um, what should we expect as we uh, step into your workshop? Well, what I hope to, to talk about with the group is um, what I've learned through my own journey of grief about how we can talk about things in congregational life that maybe people don't want to talk about and how we honor grief that are not just death. I think um, in church life, we are so good at death in many occasions. I mean, we know how to bake the casserole, don't we? <laughs> We know how to organize a, a funeral reception, and we know about sympathy cards and where to find them in the grocery store. But that longer journey of walking people through seasons um, and knowing how to empathize with people who deal with grief that maybe we don't understand, um, those are things I'm going to be talking about in the workshop and hope that people leave with a better idea about how to potentially restart or reform their grief ministry um, that's not just about when someone dies in the congregation, but is more inclusive of, of grief like infertility or miscarriage um, and helps walk people through the, some of the, the hardest days of their lives um, with, with authenticity. And everybody should just buy their books beforehand so you can sign them there or you have some, some resources. Sure. No, I'm going to have, I will have, I'm, you know, I'm carting my suitcase with books. I'm always going around with books and I'd be glad to um, offer you a book at the workshop and sign it for you. Um, and like I said, my hope is that more pastors, offices, um, more libraries have a copy of it and that they, um, that, you know, that when um, someone needs it, that it's, that it's a resource there for them. Mm. And for those that uh, aren't able to make the workshop, um, there will be an audio file available on CBF's website within a, a few weeks after General Assembly. Of course, then you can access the, this podcast as well to, to find that more information about Elizabeth. Um, what, what's next for you? I'd, I'd like to think that General Assembly is in a high mark in the summer for you. It certainly will be for us. But uh, what do you have coming up next in the next few months? Well, I'm also going to be speaking in July at Wild Goose um, Festival, which is in um, Hot Springs, North Carolina, a collection of some amazing speakers. I, I'm really honored to be a part of that. Um, and the thing I'm going to be talking about at, at Wild Goose is how you find yourself with a life that maybe you don't expect, which is in our case, who expects to deal with infertility for eight years of their life, and how that can be birthed into something beautiful because if you're asking me about what I what I'm doing next, um, the, besides being able to help churches who are who are um, going through interim times, which is what I do, the other thing that fills most of my time these days is um, working to build up the foundation that I um, have created called Our Courageous Kids. Um, and to me, that is the the beautiful thing that has come out of a really terrible season of our life that God has opened up doors for us to connect in really powerful ways with kids living in international orphanages all over the world. Um, I just got back from a trip to Kenya where I was able to um, spend some time with some of our courageous kids um, who are kids growing in, up in an institution and uh, these are teenage kids and they're getting ready to think about transitioning out of the center. And, and what I'm hoping to do with the foundation is to provide money for um, grants, for scholarships, for them to be able to go on to college or to receive vocational training so that they um, continue to have the support 
when their children's center is no longer able to give that, but able to um, keep dreaming big dreams and knowing that they have a family that's bigger um, and than they might ever imagine that there's people all around the world cheering them on and wanting to include them in their lives. And so that is what I'm working on. And um, I'm always happy to to talk to people about that effort and, and how you could include a, a, um, a kid who has grown up, grown up in an institution, how you can include them in your family and help sponsor them through um, college or vocational training. That's, that's powerful work. Sounds, sounds like a lot. I love doing like five things at one time. (laughs) I think I I do better if I have four things to do. I don't know. That doesn't really make much sense, but it somehow works for me. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a a new book project, um, um, as well. And it, it is related to this work that we've been able to do with kids, um, in an orphan context. Um, as you and I are talking, the, the lectionary reading that was just yesterday um, was John 14 about how um, God doesn't, um, um, when Jesus was leaving his disciples, he was saying, you know, I'm not going to leave you orphans. And so um, that's, that's really the focus of this project I'm working on is what can we learn from, from large communities of kids who are growing up in institutions um, who are labeled as orphans. Um, I found that many of them don't even like that label. Um, what can we learn from them about what um, Jesus has to offer us about not being orphaned ourselves and our own adoption story through Christ? Um, and so I'm really excited about how, you know, all these things have kind of come together in my life and um, looking forward to continuing to see what happens. Well, certainly out of all the many, many things you're doing, thank you for, for taking time out to speak with us about General Assembly, about your, your, your book, and certainly about your life story. Um, you can check out more information about Elizabeth at elizabethhagen.org or ourcourageouskids.org. You can purchase her book on Amazon or through Chalice Press. And certainly we hope you will come to General Assembly this summer to see her on Friday, June the 30th. Her workshop will be at 1.30 p.m. Elizabeth, thank you. I appreciate you having me, and I look forward to seeing and meeting new friends at General Assembly this summer. All right, before you close down the podcast app, you need to know about one more of our sponsors. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be attained either in Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. The School of Divinity strives to provide a holistic education that stretches the mind, stirs the heart, and prepares the call for Christian ministry. Immerse yourself into the life of our community and visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity for more information. Special thanks to our three sponsors for today, CBF Sabbatical Covenant, CBF's Peer Learning Groups, and the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. 
Be sure to visit cbf.net backslash church starting for more information about the initiative, including our discernment cohorts, innovation group processes, coaching, internships, and stories from our church starters from across the fellowship.